Well, Phil, I appreciate the kind words, the, uh, the truth of the way that this played out. Uh, if you've been a part of this, uh, we had a guest speaker over the last four weeks. We were off last week because of the weather. But the guest speaker, Caitlin, uh, if you heard her speak, she did a fantastic job. Uh, great to have her. If she's listening to this, thank you for that. And Danielle approached me and said, uh, it's a tough act to follow uh, from Caitlin. So we're looking for somebody to come in and kind of lower the bar before Phil comes back. And I said, uh, well, I'd be happy to help. I'll do my best. And she said, perfect. We'll take it. Um, I've been coming to Clarity for, is it three years now? Uh, my wife, Victoria, we've got three daughters that, uh, you know, at the end of the service, you'll see them running around here. But uh, this church has been a huge blessing, and I am extremely excited to be here and to be able to share this time with you. So thank you for having me. Today I'm going to be talking on John chapter 13. So if you have a Bible or if it's on your phone, that's fine, as uh, Sulin said, you can look at your phone if it's looking at Scripture. But I'm going to read that, and the verses that I'm going to focus on in the message is verses 34 and 35, and those verses say, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And this is how the world is going to know that you're my disciples and how you love one another. But I want to read a little bit more than just those verses. And I'm going to ask you to bear with me because I am going to read the whole verse. Oh, it's for the whole chapter. Thank you. Yes, the whole chapter of John 13. So if you're there, please join me. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During the supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. He then poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he had girded himself. So he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, and Simon Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him and said, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew that one was betraying him. And for this reason, he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who sent greater the one 
the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one he was speaking of. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, It is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. And so he had dipped the morsel, he took it, and he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to them, what, said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing that Judas had the money box and that Jesus was saying to go uh, buy the things that we need for the feast or else he should be giving something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Let me pray with us. Pray with me on this. Heavenly Father, thank you for your words here. We invite you into this setting. And we are here to hear from you, to learn from you. I pray that we would be able to understand these scriptures. And I pray that you would give me your spirit, that the words that come out of my mouth would be from you and would be only truth. In Jesus' name, amen. My guess is you've heard a lot of these scriptures before. It's very easy to hear these stories and look at them with the same lens. Maybe it's a sermon that you've heard before. Um, it's easy to compartmentalize them. How many times have you heard the story of Judas Iscariot? How many times have you heard the story about Jesus washing the disciples' feet? Or that Peter makes this bold proclamation and Jesus gives him a bit of a rebuke, 
says, nope, it's going to be three times that you're going to deny me before the morning even comes. But how often did you put those together in the same chapter? I hope that we can learn something new with this, that we can look at it in a little bit of a different light. There's so much here, and there's no way that I can cover all of it. But I encourage you to let's look at this in a little bit more of an interwoven story and see what the Lord is telling us. Let's set the stage here. This is the Last Supper. Let's try to step into Jesus' mind and what's happening here. We see that he, he understands what's going on. He knows, and he's giving an update to the disciples. Something is going down. You need to be aware of something. There's somebody here that is going to betray me. The mood turns right there. And Jesus has to know that this is going to be a memorable moment for his disciples. This is the calm before the storm. Things are about to go a little bit haywire as they leave the Last Supper. So this is the opportunity that Jesus has to really make an impact on his disciples. He knows what's going to happen to him, and he knows what's coming for them. He knows that he's leaving, and he says as much, I'm leaving. You can't follow me. There's going to be a separation. And not too long, it's going to be on your shoulders to change the world. Phil said, this is a time where we can be Christians that have an impact on all people. How do we do that? I think Jesus was giving his disciples the game plan here. That's how he used that time. And what does he say to them? He says, I'm going to give you a new commandment. I want you to love each other as I have loved you. This is how the world is going to know that you're my disciples and how you love each other and how you love one another. What struck me is, what's new about this? What's new about this commandment? Help me out. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is like it, which is love your neighbors as yourself. And this, I have this vague memory of it being kind of important, right? <laughs> so this is not new to love each other. That goes back to Leviticus. Why is this new? Jesus is the new component here. It's a wonderful commandment to love each other, but here Jesus is saying, I'm setting an example. This is why I came. I came into the world to demonstrate what love is. Anybody know the singer Rich Mullins? He has a a song called uh, All the Way to Kingdom Come. And some of the lyrics in that say, uh, we didn't know what love was until he came. But he came and he gave love a face and he gave love a name. I've always liked those lyrics, but it highlights the point to me that Jesus came to show what love is. He walked it, he lived it, he demonstrated it. What does this look like practically? If we are to take this new commandment and live it out in our lives, what does that look like? 
It's not a coincidence that Jesus says this right after washing the disciples' feet. Right? He gives a pretty stark example. Here, you know who I am. You say I'm Lord and teacher, and you're right. I am. Now, look at what I did. You know, back in those days, um, feet got a little bit gross. That might not be different today, but you think it's bad now of trying to wash somebody's feet. You should have been around back then. Right? They walked everywhere. And maybe they had sandals, but there were dirt roads. So you're walking all around and you get the dirt and the grime that's in there. And it's not a fun job. It's one that people didn't want to do. And here, you've got the king of kings who humbled himself to do the job that nobody wanted to do. All the feet were still dirty. Nobody else got down and did it. Right? He didn't lean on stature to ask somebody else to do it. He didn't say it was beneath him. I'm sure that made a a significant statement to the disciples. But Jesus says something that I find fascinating. In verse 7, he says, What I do, you don't realize now. You will understand hereafter. I think he's speaking more about, more than just about washing feet and serving. We have the benefit of the entirety of Scripture, right? It's a wonderful thing to be able to have it all neatly compiled into a book to be able to read and understand from the beginning to end and see God's plan throughout history and how it played out. The disciples didn't have that. They had a lot of the Old Testament, but things were happening real time. And Jesus is giving them the clues here. Pay attention. You don't have the whole picture here, but this is going to matter hugely. You will understand, but not yet. And I think these words were rattling around in John's head. You know, I'm sure it wasn't all the disciples, but as we have the benefit of full scripture, if you read the, the book of 1 John, you get to see how this, this transformed some of his thinking and how he wrote. But Jesus knew what was going on. This was the Last Supper. He didn't, he had that full picture. So the disciples didn't, but Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew, and he still went. Ephesians 5.2 says, Walk in love as Christ loved us. And he gave himself up for us as an offering and sacrifice to God. And a little bit later in John, he says, Greater love has no man than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus was demonstrating that in order to love like him, it was going to be a sacrificial love. And that might not sound like something new to us. Um, we've probably heard, uh, you know, agape love, that, that word in the Greek, it means a self-sacrificial love. Um, and it can be a really challenging thing of what does that look like to sacrifice and to love like Jesus. We'll dive a little bit more into that, but I want to kind of get to the end of this uh, scripture because at the end of the chapter, when I read this, 
it, it felt like a big plot twist. Jesus is teaching his disciples and imparting his game plan of how we're going to change the world. Okay? The world needs to know that you're my disciples. It's going to spread far and wide. How do we do this? You need to love like I do. What does that love look like? It's a sacrificial love. It's something that takes effort that not everybody can do. It takes laying down your life. It means serving. You're not better than anybody. That work isn't beneath you. But even more than that, watch what I'm going to do. I know what's coming. For the joy set before me, I'm going to endure the cross. And I want you to do likewise in your life. And after that, he says, I'm going to be leaving you. And you can't follow. Peter steps up and he says, why can't I? I will lay down my life for you. And as I read that, I thought, cow, here's a coach telling his team what he needs. A player saying, I'll do that. I'll lay down my life for you. The response you would expect would be, yes! This is what we need. This is what I want my disciples to do. This is how we're going to transform the world. This is the game plan. You get it. We're ahead of schedule. Awesome. Is that what Jesus said? No. The plot twist. He looks at him and he says, Will you? Will you lay down your life for me? And even maybe a step further in his next statement of what must have been a real sting for Peter. You're going to deny me three times. Now, again, we have the benefit of the entirety of the story. Peter transforms radically and does lay down his life for the sake of the gospel. But this was um, challenging to me because when I read it the second time, uh, what I read was, will you, Todd? Will you lay down your life for me? The call to love like Jesus is not a small one. And if I'm being honest, I'm not sure that I feel up to the task. Uh, I'm a hockey player, and it feels a bit like a coach saying I need to be Wayne Gretzky. I'm not sure I'm up for it. Now, before we get into the pits of despair, um... (laughs) I want to maybe set some riverbanks on expectations. And I want to talk about a really important theological truth that gives me comfort in the face of this challenge. So let's talk about those riverbanks. On the one hand, in this call to love like Jesus, I don't want us to be ignorant. There are people out there in the world who are martyred for their faith, who are persecuted for being Christians. And that's hard. They live up to that call, and there's joy in that, but there's hardship. And it takes faith, and it takes perseverance. And if we have that call on our life, I hope that we are a church, a community, individuals who have the faith and the fortitude to live out that call, to step into that with joy, to answer what the Lord is calling us to do. But that's not everybody's story. If we look at 
I don't have the verse off the top of my head, but it's written in here, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. It says, make it your aim to live a quiet life, to work with your hands, to not be in need, so you can set a good example to those around you and to your neighbors. That may be the other riverbank and the call on your life, that God is calling you to live a quiet life, to live a good example. Both of these require loving like Jesus. They take sacrificial love. You know, this isn't the first time in Scripture that it gives us a call to something that feels unachievable. Matthew 5.48 says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Right? Are we called to be perfect? Well, it would seem so. Are we going to be? <laughs> no. Not any more than I'm going to play like Wayne Gretzky. Are we called to love like Jesus? Will we do it all the time? Probably not. This brings me to uh, the really important theological truth that gives me comfort in, in the face of this challenge. It was some time ago that Phil preached a series on, uh, I, I think it was called Coffee Mug Theology. Is that what it was called? And it was uh, scriptures that people love to have on coffee mugs and may not be understood in the right connotation. I'm going to propose a candidate for that. And it comes from the book of 1 Peter, verse 4.18. You may have heard this. It says, perfect love casts out fear. I think this is a greatly misunderstood verse. A lot of people read that and they say, this perfect love comes from God, and he has perfect love, therefore I do not need to fear. And that would be a misunderstanding of that verse. When Peter writes that, that love that he's talking about, this perfect love, is not the love that God has. That is a reference to our love. And the word perfect is, I'm not going to say a wrong translation, but maybe a hard one to understand. Because the context of it is not as we understand the word perfect, as in without flaw. The context of that word perfect, it means being carried out to its completion. Fulfilling its intended purpose. And so what that scripture is saying is, if our love that we have and we demonstrate into the world is being fulfilled in its purpose, is being carried out to completion, then we can have confidence to stand before the Lord and not face judgment because it cast out that fear. It's the same word that's used in James chapter 2, verse 24, and it says uh, about works, Works, or it talks about faith. Faith is completed by works. For some time, I, I struggled to reconcile what's written in Ephesians chapter 2 and written in James chapter 2. Uh, Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9 is a, a verse that's commonly used in scripture memory. Does anybody help me out with that? Ephesians chapter 2? Thank you. Exactly, thank you. It is by grace that you've been saved, through faith. 
This is not of yourselves, not through works, so that no one can boast. If anybody can cite James chapter 2, verse 24, I'll buy you a coffee. <laughs> Read it out. We are shown to be right with God by what we do and not by faith alone. If I was outside the church and I read those two verses in isolation, I'd be like, boom! Clear-cut example of contradiction in Scripture. And that's easy to do if you don't take it in context. But understanding the context is important. In Ephesians, we clearly see that saving grace is a gift from God. You cannot earn it. But James clearly says that if you have that saving faith, it will not come alone. You will have works that show that. And if you don't have that, you don't have the saving faith. But they complete each other. It's the same word, teleos, that's used in James as is used in 1 Peter about our love. Okay? This is a Jerry Maguire moment. Okay? Faith bursts in on works and says, you complete me. If you haven't seen that movie, you don't really need to see it. But they're linked. And the reason this is important is, as we look at that call to be perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect, we all agree we're not going to be. Right? But works matter. As uh, <laughs> Paul says it, it's not that I've attained this. I have not reached perfection, but I do press on toward the heavenly call in Christ Jesus. I'm not there, but I'm going to work on it. And scripture shows that that effort matters. At another point, Paul says, look at what at that time was essentially Olympic athletes, of how hard they work to pursue a crown that will not last. Blood, sweat, and tears that they pour into it. How much more should we put into a crown that will last forever? The effort does matter. Now, when we look at that in the context of love, we're not going to love perfectly. But 1 Peter 4.18 gives that translation that there is an effort, there is a demonstration that completes that, that gives us a confidence that we can stand before the Lord and cast out any fear. What does that love look like? It doesn't have to be perfect, but it's something that should be on display. I kind of want to say that again. It's something that isn't going to be perfect, but it should be on display. And you tie that back into the game plan that Jesus laid out. This is how the world's going to know that you're my disciples and how you love one another with this sacrificial love. There has to be something different about our love. It can't be the same as what the world sees in other places. Right? You can't notice the difference of black on black. So what's, what's different? How is the world going to know that we are disciples of Christ. I want to turn to maybe a little bit of uh, practical advice in this. And there's going to be more points that we could bring out, 
but I have three. The first one is to serve. We saw this earlier in the chapter with Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And in my mind, this is a form of sacrifice, of living sacrificial. You sacrifice your time. You sacrifice your resources. You sacrifice your ego. I had a, a head coach in college. Uh, I played hockey in college. I was fortunate to. And I had a, a, a very demanding coach. Um, but he was a really, really good coach. And I didn't know it right away, but he loved the Lord, a Christian. And at, the, uh, at Navy, which is where I went to school and I played, when you're a freshman there, you're called a plebe. And the context of that, plebe was the lower class of society. And uh, your whole first year, that's what you were. So as a freshman on the team, one of the expectations is that uh, when you come back from road trips, the plebes get to carry the equipment off the bus back into the locker room. Guess who else carried bags into the locker room? The head coach. He served. I still have a good relationship with Rick, and he and I spent five years in ministry together down the road. It was a wonderful time. What opportunities do you have to, work, to, to serve? What opportunities do you have in your home to serve each other? What are the jobs that people don't want to do that you can do? What are those opportunities at work? What are those opportunities within our church to serve? How can you put aside your stature to make a statement? The second one is to forgive. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just in God, in Christ, also has forgiven you. Sacrifice your grudge. Sacrifice your vengeance and your self-righteousness. Micah 7.19 says, you will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea, at the bottom of the ocean. You can't get there. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I came across a story. Uh, it's about Moravian missionaries and they wanted the mission field to Eskimos. What they found as they learned the language is the native tongue did not have a word for forgiveness. They had to construct one. Uh, this is the word. Yes, I listened to that on repeat online repeatedly until I could say it. <laughs> And I'm sure I still butchered it. The literal translation of that is not being able to think about it anymore. The third one is take the first step. Go first. Sacrifice your safe place. 
First John 4, 10 and 11 says this. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that we, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the song this morning, we said, we sang, we were still foes, and your love fought for us. God took the first step. Well, what does that look like? Maybe it's a scenario where there's anger on both sides. There's hurt on both sides. Somebody has to go first. Maybe it's an act that is disproportionate to where your relationship is with someone. Well, that was certainly the case with us with Jesus, right? I mean, he certainly loved us, but what an incredible act for somebody who was once his enemy to make him his friend. It makes an impression. I'm going to ask the worship team to to come on back up, uh, get ready to do our closing song. There's probably a lot more practical opportunities of how we can live out sacrificial love. Some things might be obvious. As we look at those examples of martyrs and people who are persecuted, yes, those people are laying down their lives. But it's not just dying for the gospel. That could be part of it. But it's how do we pour out our lives into the people around us so that we can live differently so that we can show this world what the love of Christ is. And when they look at my life, I hope they don't have to ask, do I love my wife? I hope people can look at the way that I love her and say, from how I treat her, that man loves his wife. I hope people can see in the way that I treat my children, my acts of love, that man loves his children. In the workplace, I don't know that people are going to say, oh, that, that guy loves me. But they might say something like, Todd has never shown me anything but love and kindness. I hope those are the marks of my life. I hope as a church that we aspire to that, that we live like that. This is a form of evangelism and how we love each other. I think it's an incredibly important form of evangelism to display to the world what the love of Christ is, that they don't get in other places, that they see it and they say, I want that. I want to be a part of that. Please include me. And the greatest thing about it is this should be sweet, right? We get to show the world who Christ is because we love. It's like saying, if you eat your pizza, you get to have cake. (laughs) It's a win-win. Who doesn't want to be in a community like that? So I challenge us in clarity to be a community defined by love. And we talk about acts being on display. And when I say a community defined by love, you know, you'll hear a lot of people say love is a choice, and that is a true statement. I also hope that we are a community that pursues affection, genuine affection, a feeling. Feelings aren't constant, and that's why a choice has to be there to back it up and to drive love and to display it. But I will say I hope that we pursue that affection because without that, 
it's very hard to do those acts. I don't want to stand before Jesus and have him say, yeah, I died for you, but I didn't really have affection. (laughs) What a sting. No, that's not the case. Jesus loved us, a genuine affection that drove him to do the extraordinary. How can we live that out in our lives, in our families, in our communities, in our church?